We carry on in our study of the book of Hebrews. We start chapter 3 this morning. We're in the first six verses. One who is greater than Moses is here. Hear then the word of God. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Father in heaven, we do turn our hearts to you this morning. We thank you for your great love and mercy towards us. Even now as we come to your word, we desire to hear from you. We desire for you to speak to us, to our hearts, to our lives, with power, with grace, with transforming work of your Holy Spirit. For we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we read in verse 2 that Jesus was faithful over the house, but Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. And so we see Jesus being compared to Moses in terms of their faithfulness. They're both faithful in God's house. But they're comparing these two because Moses was the greatest Jew that ever lived. He was the greatest Jew that had ever risen in the life of Israel and all the roles and aspects that he played in their life. And the stories of Moses are really remarkable. As a baby, he was protected by God from a certain death. And so he was set adrift in a river. And, and by random providence, the princess found him. He is, he is found and raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He raised and rises in Pharaoh's court as a prince virtually. He is called by God out of the midst of a a miraculously fiery bush that burns but isn't consumed. And God speaks to him and calls him and appoints him as the leader and deliverer of Israel. And so he confronts Egypt's Pharaoh. He performs miracles. He calls down plagues. And he sets God's people free. And so he leads them out of slavery And it is through Moses that the Red Sea is parted and then an Egyptian army is destroyed. It is to Moses that God gave the Ten Commandments. He gave him the first five books of God's Word, the Pentateuch. All of those first books are given to Moses, written through Moses, and they are called the Law of Moses. And you'll read almost throughout the the Scripture, Old Testament and New, those five books are referred to as the Law of Moses. And for 1,500 years, the law of Moses uh, defined the nation of Israel. It defined its worship. It defined its morality. It defined its civil government. And the the, uh, Pharisees of Jesus' day and the leaders of Israel considered themselves uh, disciples of Moses, follower of Moses and Moses' law. 
but most significant of all in the veneration of Moses was his unparalleled intimacy with God. The time he spent in God's presence, he received God's word, those Ten Commandments, but also the plans for the tabernacle, which were the plans for the temple and the plans for the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, the centerpiece of the worship of the life of Israel. God inspired the prophets through visions and through dreams and this kind of thing, but Moses ascended the mountain and spent a month with God, spoke with God. Exodus 33.11 says this, The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. It's a unique person, a unique relationship, a unique experience for Moses standing out from all others in the life of Israel. He returned from his encounters with God literally aglow. Right, reflecting the glory of God. He had to veil his face because of the reflection of God's glory that was on him, because of the time he spent with God receiving from him the law of Moses. I don't know why it's not called the law of God, but it shows that Moses stands head and shoulder above anybody in Israel. But of Jesus, it said, in John 1.14, it says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. He is the glory as of the only Son from the Father, because He's full of grace and truth. And this is what the author is trying to show us. This sentence there, that he is, we've seen his glory, it's the glory of the only Son from the Father, and he's full of grace and truth. And this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to bring home. He's going to bring it home over the next several chapters as we walk through some of the ceremonial law of Moses and see how Jesus is not only superior to it, but fulfills it and takes its place, even as he takes his place at God's right hand. One greater than Moses is here. So in verse 3, we're told that Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. It's a glory of a whole other magnitude. You compare these two, and it, it really isn't worth comparing. One greater than Moses has come. And this, you know, for you and I, this is, is obvious Right? But to those who only had the law of Moses, and for 1,500 years, their entire life and worship and morality and their civil government is all governed by and shaped by the law of Moses. They were all disciples of Moses. And to come along and to say, eh, there's one so much greater than Moses that it fulfills and overshadows all that he has done. One greater than Moses has come. He is a greater office. He has done a greater work. And he is a more glorious person. Right? He has a greater office. He has done a greater work. And he is a more glorious person than Moses. And this is good news for Israel. There, there were those who were stumbling over it. 
right? The gospel that, that was a, the stumbling block for the Jews, that one greater than Moses, that supersedes Moses, that abrogates so much of the law because he fulfills it. This is hard. It is hard to, if we have a tradition in the church for like 10 years, it becomes unchangeable. Right? When you try to say something, people come in and they're like, oh, we've always done it this way. I'm not really. We've done it for like six or seven years. Right? And we just started it. We can see. But here, they, for 1,500 years, the law of Moses is the shape of Israel and its worship. And we're saying, now one who is greater has come. Greater. Fulfills and rises so much more. Moses brought the law. Jesus reveals grace and truth. As impressive and important as Moses was, the glory of Jesus is infinitely greater and it blows the mind of Jews who can hardly believe that this one has come. Finally come. Because they were waiting for him. Some were waiting for him. Some received him. Even today, some receive him. But not everyone. And so he says in verse 1, we are to consider Jesus. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, consider this Jesus. He is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. When he says we're to consider Jesus, the word for consider here, there's words for, you know, look and see and all of this. But the word here, to consider, it uses that to try to capture in the, the English language this idea that you're to do you're to think about it, that you can, you're to examine him, to, to study, to, to give serious thought to. It's this idea of examination, of, of really spending some time giving your attention to reflect and to think carefully about this Jesus and who he is and what he has done in relation to what has gone before. Consider Jesus, think carefully about what I am saying, consider this one I am telling you about. Understand who Jesus is. Understand what Jesus has done. And he says, therefore, consider him. Therefore. So it starts with therefore, and you know that therefore points back. You think of the sermon from last week and all that he has been saying about Jesus. Therefore, consider Jesus based on what I've, I've been telling you, that God took on flesh in the person of Jesus. And he did it so that he might destroy the work of the devil. He says he did it to destroy the work of the devil, destroy sin and death, and become for us a merciful and faithful high priest. Consider him. John 1.17, it says, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You're in the know. <laughs> But you need to understand how much greater grace and truth is to the law. And this is something that they had to come to understand as something that they needed. It's impossible to overestimate that the truth and the grace and the superiority of that and the person who brings it over the law. Much of the book of Hebrews is going to walk us through this step by step. The glory of Jesus over the law of Moses and everything in the Old Covenant. The author does not talk Moses down. He was faithful, he says, in all of God's house. There was no one greater until Jesus. 
fulfilled all prophecy. The light of the shadow of the Old Testament has come. And so he calls us to consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Right, our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he is who he said he is and he has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Making propitiation for our sins. He is our apostle. He is a sent. With the word apostle, it's a generic word and there were a lot of apostles that sent ones. It's just a word that means somebody who's sent to represent somebody else. But when Jesus had his 12 disciple, uh, uh, disciples that he pulled aside, and when he, when he pulled the 12 aside, it says that he, uh, that he called them his disciples. He made them or his apostles. He made them his apostles. It became a, a thing, an office. These are my 12 sent ones. And so it became, we have an apostle with a capital of A, Jesus' apostles, the ones he sent. But Jesus was sent by the Father. The sender of the twelve was sent by the Father. He is the apostle, the sent one, who came from the Father to take on flesh and to do all that he has done. And so he is the ultimate and unique sent one who has the power and the authority to send others, the twelve. Moses was sent to deliver the law. Jesus is sent to bring grace and truth and to make propitiation for our sins. He is, he is, the, he is our apostle the apostle of God, and our high priest. And as I said, we're going to be covering this in the next two chapters of how Jesus is the high priest of our confession. And he's going to unpack it in detail. But I want us to say this morning that Moses was no priest at all. Moses brought the law. And we were just singing about it, reading it in, in Romans chapter 3. Through the law came the knowledge of sin. Right? Moses brought the law, and so the law reveals our sin. We read it, and it tells us, and what we see there is a mirror showing us where we fall short. But it also reveals to us the judgment of God against sin, that the wages of sin is death. And that's where it leaves us. It reveals sin in God's judgment against it. But it gives us no grace, no hope in itself. Jesus Christ is the high priest who comes and saves us from the curse of the law. And so back in chapter 2, verse 17, it says that he makes propitiation for the sins of God's children. He atones for our sins and he appeases the wrath of God. He is our, the apostle and the high priest of our confession in a way that Moses is not. And so we're to consider him, verses 3 and 4, as more glorious than Moses. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory then Moses is much more glory as the builder of a house, has more honor than the house. You have the house, and then you have the guy that built it. The house can be glorious, it could be a wonderful thing, but it's just a house, and it didn't build itself, it didn't design itself, it didn't erect itself. The houses can be glorious, but the builder who designed it, right, who built every inch of it, who created it and made it what it was. The builder is so much more glorious than the house. And what the text is telling us is Jesus is the builder. Moses is just part of the house. Moses is part of the house that Jesus is building. 
And he has more glory than Moses, like the builder of the house has over the house that is built. Jesus is the Lord, the architect, the designer, the one who's building every inch of it. And yes, Moses was glorious in his, in his way. He is due a certain honor. He was faithful in God's house. But it's a whole, it's a glory of a totally different magnitude, measure. It's totally other. Houses don't build themselves. Moses did not part the Red Sea. He did not write the Ten Commandments. He did not make his face to glow. But the one who did all those things has come. And he is so much greater than Moses. He is the builder. He is the designer. He is the glory giver. And so Matthew 16, 18, we're told Jesus says, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I would say he has been building his church, Old Testament and new, building a people of faith, calling a people of faith, shaping a people of faith, saving a people of faith, Old Testament and new. Jesus is building his church, a people for himself, a people of faith who trust in him alone. I will build my church. He is the builder. 1 Peter 2.5 says, you yourselves are like living stones. You're being built up as a spiritual house. Right? The image there of a temple or of a church, right? of something. And Jesus is building it. And we're stones. Each of us is a stone, a living stone, building a temple. We corporately, which is why we gather corporately. None of us is the church by itself, the building by itself. But we, like living stones, built together as we gather here, we are the temple of God. Right? We are what he is building, his church against the gates of hell. But we're just the building. And so verse 5 and 6, we're to consider Jesus more glorious than Moses, not just as the builder over the house, but as a son over a servant. Right? Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken but Jesus Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Again, Moses was faithful. He's due a certain honor. But like us, he was just a servant. He's one of us. He's not set apart in that way. He's one of us. He's part of the, he's part of the building, part of the church. But Jesus, it says that he was faithful over God's house in verse 6 as a son. God so loved the world that he sent his only, his only son. And this son is so outshines, is so elevated and glorious over any of the servants or any part of the house that he is building. John 1.14, it says, we've seen his glory. It's the glory, it's of the only son from the father. He's full of grace and truth, and that glory of grace and truth far outshines the law that Moses brought. John 8, 35 and 6, he says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The servant doesn't remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. Moses is passed on. Christ lives and reigns over his church now. He is our apostle and our high priest now. 
right? He is, he is the one who fills us and empowers us and is building us now. The servant has passed. Moses is gone. The son remains forever. And so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Because he's still setting us free every morning and every day when his mercies are new. When he fills us with his spirit, he carries on that work that he has begun in us and will carry on to completion till the day of Christ. If the Son has set you free, you are free, free forever as the children of God in his household. The children of the householder are free. This is where the passage reaches its full application. Because in verse 6, he says, we are that house. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. We are his house. We are. All right, there's a statement there, again, to be tattooed on your arm, you know, along with he is an apostle and high priest of our confession, that we are his house, that we belong to him. He has made us what we are. He has designed us. Right? He is building us, every inch of us that is, that is any different than it was before we came to know him. He is the architect of our sanctification as much as our salvation. Brothers and sisters, we are his house. So in one sense, my application right off the bat is going to be, let us be who we are. I love the way he starts it. He says, therefore, holy brothers and sisters... God's family is where the holy comes in, the set-aside ones, children of God, brothers and sisters of the firstborn, holy brothers and sisters, Jesus' brothers and sisters, the family of God. He says, we are. Behold, what manner of love is this, that we should be called the children of God. And yet that is what we are. So Romans 8, 29 thinking about this and being who we are. Romans 8, 29 says that those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we, the brothers and sisters, have been destined, predestined, from before the foundations of the world to be conformed to the image of our elder brother. We are Holy brothers and sisters to our brother Jesus. That's why back in chapter 2 and verse 11, it says, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, Jesus the sanctifier, the older brother, the image of God, and those who are being sanctified, being renewed in God's image, the brothers and sisters of Jesus, have one source, and that is why he is not ashamed to call them his brothers. Jesus is the firstborn sanctifying, conforming his siblings to his own image, which is the image of God, the image that was lost and broken, being restored. Do you know that the great business of your life is what the Bible calls to be sanctified, which is a fancy way of saying being more and more like Jesus, being conformed to his image. You were destined for it. Right? You are called and brought to Christ and united to Christ with the, with the predestined determination, plan, and purpose of God that you would be conformed to Jesus' image. 
your older brother. More and more like Jesus is your destiny. And it should be the great business of our lives, morning by morning as we find his mercies new, to repent of who we were and what we have done, that we may rise and follow Jesus. And to seek by his grace and the indwelling of his spirit that we would pursue him today better than we did yesterday and rise morning by morning in this pursuit, the business of our lives, to follow Jesus, to be like Jesus. Paul says in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, he says, one thing I do. When he says one thing, he doesn't mean this is one thing among the many things I do today. Because today I got to get dressed and shave and I got to go to work and I got to get the car oil changed or whatever. You know, he's not like, one thing I do is this, among the many other things I do. When he says the one thing I do, he means the important thing I do, the main thing I do. That's the one thing, the most important grand purpose that I pursue, that I do. One thing I do is forgetting what is behind, is straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. In verse 1 he says, brothers and sisters, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in this heavenly calling. The brothers and sisters of Jesus share in this heavenly calling, this upward call of God in Christ. As his holy brothers and sisters, the house that he is building. It is the number one business to be more like Jesus. Holy brothers and sisters. And so I ask you, is this the one thing you do? One thing in the sense that it's the most important thing? That it's the main thing and it's important to keep the main thing the main thing? Right? Is this the, the one thing we do forgetting whatever failure and whatever else is going on, wherever we were, whoever we were, whatever? Are we pressing forward after the calling, the high calling of God in Christ? We are God's house. God is building something. It includes you, and you're a, a brick in that building, living stones being built together. I love Ephesians 2, where he, he's, he calls us his poema, which is a, a poem, but, it's any, but it can be any work of craftsmanship. And so in Ephesians 2, verse 10, he says, we are, you and I are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Right, this is our day. He created us in Christ Jesus for these good works, this destiny, this conformity to Christ, this pursuit of Jesus and all that concerns him and his kingdom. He prepared this beforehand that we should walk in them. To follow Jesus is to walk in these things. And he has created us, his workmanship. Holy brothers and sisters, are you pressing toward the goal? Are you growing to be who you are? The upward call. And the whole call as it's coming across here in the book of Hebrews is the call to hold fast. To hold fast to our confession. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And the message of the entire book of Hebrews is to hold fast to him and the confession that is in Christ. And so, verse 6, he ends and he says, We are his house if indeed we hold fast. We hold fast our confidence in Christ, who he is and what he has done. 
and we hold fast in our boasting in our hope that is in Christ, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's the hold fast in our confidence in our hope that is in Christ. There is nothing but Jesus that can save us. So we hold fast to this hope, to this confidence. His sheep hear his voice. You know, there's a warning that comes there. It's a warning that God's children should hear. God uses warnings to keep us on the track. The warning says, don't go there, don't go there. And we say, he said, no, go here. And, and those who hear his voice, follow him. And he uses those warnings to keep us on the trail, to keep us on the path. And so even this one, the warning comes in the word if. Right? We are his house. If. We hold fast. Right? And there's a warning there about not holding fast. About wandering from the way. Wandering from the truth and the grace as it is given to us in Christ. To any other gospel. To any other message. Here's the warning. But mostly it is a call. A call to hope and to confidence. And we are his house. And we're the ones who hold fast to the confidence that we have in Christ and the hope that is our boast in who he is and what he has done for us, our only hope and our only boast. And so to consider him, to pay attention to him, to listen to him. Do you know there are so many voices right now? We were just having this conversation about how ministers and people of, uh, in the 19th century and 1800s were so much more productive than we are. But we were just taking note. There were no TVs and no phones and no cars. Like you didn't go anywhere. You didn't hear anything. There were no radios. It was, it was like you and time, space to do things and accomplish things. But now we spend, I forget the numbers. They, they do studies on these things. How much time you spend looking at a screen every day, every day. How much our children do, which is a more frightening prospect. Our eyes, but do we understand these things are shaping our hearts and minds? He says, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest. Consider this one I've been talking about. That takes time and attention. It takes space in our lives to do that. But that space has been given over to the screen. Whether you're standing in line, even if you're driving, it's filled, it's filled, I'm, I'm, I'm going on, even, I would say our children are being discipled by this toxic media. The studies are in, it is damaging to our children. The Surgeon General, secular state is telling you, this is damaging to your children. You should have a handle on it. You should know what your children are looking at. You should be able to know everything that they're doing on their phone. They should limit their access to social media. It is damaging our children, and particularly our daughters according to the studies. My point is this. We have this constant stream of the world's lies and its input and its inanity, its, its, its distraction in our world. And it is going to take consistent planning and effort to focus your lives. The main thing will not stay the main thing if we don't do the work, the consistent planning to make it the main thing to create space in our lives, to shut off and to turn off and to create space so that we can consider. I know you already have some level of commitment to that because you're here. And that's what we're doing. We are considering this Jesus. 
My friends, the danger we're being warned against is drifting away from God's truth, from his word, growing careless. Do you know that even if you're all in with church, we have, you have this consideration a few hours a week. And the screen has you apparently six hours a day or something, I don't know. So somewhere in there, the focus, this is why we should not neglect the gathering together of ourselves, as Hebrews 10.25 says, and we'll get there, as some are in the habit of doing. Why? Because we need to encourage one another all the more. Like we need help to to maintain, to stay on the path, to consider Jesus. These are the rhythms, the habit of worship, the habit of his word, the habit of prayer, which we do in this time, the habit of fellowship with him and fellowship with each other. These are the the rhythms for considering him, right, of studying him, of thinking about him, of remembering him, of letting him then to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. These are the rhythms. Where is our peace? It grows in his presence. Where is our holiness? It grows in our fellowship with him. Where is our joy, right? It grows in our worship. Where is our obedience? It grows when we abide in him. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. But where is that abiding, that considering, that living close to him, that listening and that seeing, that knowing, that worshiping that shapes everything else and conforms us to his image? So very few of us experience his joy, his peace, and his holiness because so few of us have the space in our lives to consider him. We're slaves to busyness and to stuff and everything. We need to daily turn off and turn our eyes and to consider the means, to consider means, time and attention. It means seeing him. It means knowing him. It means loving him. It means worshiping him so that we remained entranced by the glory of Jesus as God's son, as the high priest, as the builder of his house. Because only then are we going to hold fast to our confidence and the boasting of our hope, even against the gates of hell. We are swimming upstream against the very gates of hell where he's building his church. And if we're going to hold fast to our confidence, we're going to have to stand close to Jesus. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We thank you that you continue to speak to us and to call us, even by this word, to call us, to consider, call us, to study and to think, call us to a serious pursuit of Jesus. And I pray that this morning you would get a hold of us, that you would help us to think through where we need to cut out and to cut back and to make space so there's room in our lives for for you, to know you and to love you, to serve you to worship you. Help us. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.